Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. There are certain passages of Scripture that have been co-opted by different uh, branches of Christianity. Matthew 16, of course, where Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, and Jesus responds that, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That is a passage that has been largely co-opted by Roman Catholicism with regard to their doctrine of the papacy. A little later in Acts chapter 2, we'll read a passage about the promise. Peter will say that the promise is for you and for your children, a passage that has been co-opted by Presbyterians to convince us that we should baptize our children. This passage is one such passage that has been co-opted in modern Christianity by Pentecostals. Now that makes sense, this is the day of Pentecost, so doesn't this belong to the Pentecostals? This is a passage that conservative Christians, those who are not Pentecostal, tend to kind of shy away from. It's a little scary. Things are happening here that that we're not quite sure what to make of it, kind of like the, the folks who were standing around. We read in verse 12, they were in great perplexity, asking one another, what, what does this mean? And for 2,000 years, Christians have been in great perplexity, standing around asking, what does this mean? And what do we do with it? Is this the second blessing? Is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues? Some of us have more experience with that than others. Some of us have, have been in the Pentecostal church, have been in the charismatic movement, and, and therefore you know what, what I'm talking about. You know how important it is to speak in tongues. You know that within that group of believers, that group of our brethren, there is a, there is a hierarchy between those who are truly spiritual, having received that baptism, and, and those who are just you know, kind of -of run-of-the-mill Christians who who do not yet speak in tongues. This event in our day is considered more with reference to Azusa Street than Jerusalem. Now, some of you may not know where Azusa Street is. It's in Los Angeles. And in 1906, a revival under the preaching of William Seymour began at the chapel on Azusa Street. And it is considered to be the the birthplace of modern Pentecostalism. And so we think more in terms, when we read this passage, our mind tends to go to Corinthians, where, where Paul is talking in those chapters 12, 13, and 14 about the charismata, the spiritual gifts. And, and then those of us who, who do not...
practice speaking in tongues, look at this passage and wonder, and, and, and you've probably wondered this, am I missing something? Do, do they have it right? Am I not where I need to be in my walk with the Lord because I haven't had this experience? But I want to remind you that this is not Azusa Street. This is Jerusalem. This is the second feast of the Jewish calendar, Pentecost. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ who had just ascended to his throne at the right hand of majesty. This is what this means. And again, it is one of those passages that I've mentioned before in the book of Acts where we have to discern whether what we're reading is, is momentous, meaning it's a particular moment in time where God's redemptive plan is, is, is revealing something new for his people, or is it normative? In other words, does it represent something that the church was to continue to do throughout its history? The answers are not always easy. Whether something is historical or whether it is a pattern to be followed, nor have the answers been consistently agreed upon within the church. Obviously, conservative Christianity, evangelicalism, certainly reformed theology, believes that chapter 2 represents a, a moment in time, something that God was doing at a particular era in redemptive history, not necessarily to be repeated. And equally, obviously, charismatics and Pentecostals, who I do firmly believe are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, believe that what we read of here in Acts chapter 2 is normative, that it is to be a part of the church throughout the ages. But for us, I want to ask a different question today. I'm not going to try until perhaps at the very end of the sermon to address Pentecostalism. I want to ask this question, wherein lay the miracle that we just read? Was it in the speaking or was it in the hearing? Or oh, here's a weird one. How about both? Was it in the speaking? God giving these men the gift of tongues. Well, that's how normally we, we interpret this passage when we read it. That's how it's been interpreted frequently, if not commonly, within the church. That this was the miracle. That God was giving these men, and, and I have no doubt women, there is no distinguishing here. We do not read of the apostles only getting up and speaking, but of the, the whole gathering and the tongues of fire coming from heaven alighting upon each one of them and giving them utterance as they spoke in tongues. And that shouldn't be very surprising because this, this, this concept of an ecstatic experience is very common within all religious venues. Even Judaism. There's a humorous story in, in um, 1 Samuel. And I want to read it a little bit. Chapter 10. This is Saul. okay, The son of Kish, of Benjamin, who will become Israel's um, first king. Now we're told, we're told very little about the physical appearance of any of the people in the Bible. We're told that David was what uh, a, of ruddy complexion, whatever that means. But one thing we are told about um, Saul is that basically if he had not become king of Israel he would have been middle linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He stood, he stood a full head above everyone else. 
This is a big guy. And something happens to this big guy that you don't usually associate with big guys. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 10, When they had come to the hill country there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of the God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man there answered and said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? Now what, what's not explicitly stated in that passage is how the people around knew that Saul was now prophesying. He was not speaking in the regular language. Again, a phenomenon that is recorded throughout all different religions, that when their priests or their prophets enter into that spiritual state, frequently there is a disconnect between that part of their mind that governs their normal tongue and their tongue. And they end up speaking in an ecstatic language. And that is what is happening here. The Holy Spirit has come down out of heaven and is now dwelling within the people of God, gathered together in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they are, they are overwhelmed, overtaken by the Spirit. And so we might ask, and perhaps some of them asked, is Peter among the prophets? And this was quite astounding to the folks around who heard, because as verse 7 tells us, they were amazed and said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? This was not a compliment, folks. Yeah. Let me tell you that to be called a Galilean was to be considered, um, well, it might be something like someone from up north saying, ain't you from the south? <laughs> ain't you from Galilee? Where'd you learn these languages? But it wasn't really about Peter. That's what's remarkable about, uh, remarkable about this whole account. I mean, Peter is going to loom very large in the first half of the book of Acts. But I want to, draw, I want to really draw your attention to the fact that, that from verse 1 on until verse 14, we're not given any of the names of those who are, who are the recipients of this power from on high. Not Peter. Peter will be the one, of course, to stand up first. And he will be the first one to give a Christian sermon. But at this point, it's not about Peter. It's not about John. It's not about William Seymour. It's not about Benny Hinn. It's not about you or me. This is not about a personal second blessing. And that's what I hope to convey in our talk this morning. This was about God. God in Jesus Christ inaugurating his royal dominion upon the earth once more. Remember, we've seen this prophesied all the way back in Daniel and how so many people in the time of Jesus Christ were thinking in terms of the prophecies of Daniel. Pentecost, or Passover, has already come. The Lamb of God has been sacrificed. And now the Feast of Firstfruits is upon us. And God is once again calling to himself a people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Last week I mentioned that the significance of Pentecost to the Jews was that it corresponded historically with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai after the Exodus. 
That is what they considered to be the commemorative meaning of this second feast on their calendar. Well, this was the giving of the law written upon the heart by the Holy Spirit poured out from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So where was the miracle? Well, as I said, there's no doubt that something happened to the disciples. They were speaking as we read with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The question that I have often asked as I've read this passage, asked myself, were they actually speaking the languages that the people were hearing? I believe the answer is no. I do not believe they were. I believe they were not speaking Aramaic, nor were they speaking Greek, two languages with which they would have probably been familiar and even fluent. I know they weren't speaking Hebrew, even by this time Hebrew was becoming a, a more of a written rather than a spoken language. But I don't think they were speaking Elamite. I don't think they were speaking Persian or Cappadocian. In fact, it is very remarkable how Luke records the response of the people who are hearing. They're saying not so much, we hear them speaking of the, in the language of our nation. But what they're saying is, we hear them speaking in our native dialect. We hear them speaking not just English, but American. But not just American, South Carolinian. They, they, the, the language of our birth means their, their native dialect within the much broader language. This is what the people were hearing, as if they were sitting in the kitchen of their own home, listening to their family dialogue. They were hearing these men from Galilee speaking of the mighty deeds of God in their own dialect. That is the miracle. Because there's a distinction made in verse 13 that not all heard it that way. That in this miracle, God was making a distinction between those who heard and those who did not. And so the question that the, the, the people um, ask in verse 8, I think, lies at the, at the very heart of this whole passage. They ask, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, speaking the mighty things of God in our own tongues? How is it that this is happening? Well, let's go back a little bit very briefly and look at the origin and purpose of languages. Languages, we're told in Scripture, were brought about in order to confuse and separate the nations at the Tower of Babel. Now, you might consider that to be a legend. I consider it to be historical truth. But be that as it may, have not languages confused and separated us ever since? Do they not continue to confuse and separate us? Do we not misconstrue and misunderstand people who are speaking our own language? Many people over the history of mankind have desired to bring the world back together, to bring the human race, mankind, back under one rulership, usually that particular tyrant. 
But each of these movements throughout the ages have, has recognized that if mankind is ever to be unified, his language needs to be made consistent. It needs to be either all Greek or all Latin or all French. Well, we even have the phrase lingua franca, which means the, the, the common language. Because French was the language spoken throughout most of Europe through the Middle Ages and into the modern era. Now, of course, what is the language everybody reverts to when they can't understand each other? English. That's very fortunate for us. <laughs> and so we're thinking, okay, English is going to unify mankind as Greek once did or Latin under the Roman Empire or French in the Middle Ages. But you know what? Every single attempt has failed. Because there's something underlying the division, the confusion, and the enmity within mankind. It's not just the language. It's sin. Sin that we brought into the world. Sin that separated us from our God. But sin that has also separated us from one another. And until that is dealt with, just making the language the same isn't going to unify the human race. It's been tried before. It will be tried again. And I have no doubt that if the Lord tarries in a hundred years or so, or perhaps a thousand years, the common language of the earth will not be English. It'll probably be something like Chinese. It'll be something different. But Pentecost is the first fruits of a new earth and of a new people of God. A new Israel, promised in Scripture. In the new heaven and the new earth, how many languages do you think there will be? My guess is one. We will all know as we are known, we are told in Scripture. And I have no doubt that whatever language that may be, and I am certainly not so arrogant as to think it will be English, and I certainly hope it won't be because the grammar is horrible, we will be speaking the same language. I was just thinking this morning, even the word the, we don't say it the same way. If the next word starts with a consonant, we say the. If the next word starts with a vowel, we say the. How do people learn our language? I believe in the new earth it'll be simpler. <laughs> Pentecost answers to the echo of the Lord's admonition that we read so many times in the Gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The miracle, the most astounding miracle that I read in this passage is not in the speaking but in the hearing. And as I alluded to earlier in verse 13, not everybody was able to hear it the same way. In verse 13, but others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. Well, if you want the interpretation of that, you can read a little bit on in um, verse 15, where Peter says, these men are not drunk. Now, lest you think that Peter considered drinking to be a, a sin, he says, it's, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. As if to say that it were later in the day, they might have been. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. The people hear the, the sounds coming out of these disciples, and what they hear is nothing but the babbling of drunkards. It's meaningless to them. And it has ever been that way. Man's response to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom has always divided between those who hear the words of life 
and those who hear the ridiculous babbling of drunk religious people. God still makes the same separation to those with ears to hear. It is the sweet aroma of life eternal. For those without, it's the stench of death and a mockery. And so Christianity has always been mocked as being irrational, as being unscientific, as being fanaticism by those who do not have ears to hear. In studying for this particular message, I came upon a, an interesting quote, very short one, that was up on the, the, the screen earlier. Language which conveys no meaning almost invariably excites a ludicrous emotion in the hearer. Language which conveys no meaning. Now, this past Thursday, we had the opportunity to see The Lion King. And that quote that was kind of percolating in my mind came to my mind as I watched Rafiki, the baboon, at the, at the beginning, just kind of shuffling across the stage, talking something. And I honestly do not believe that what she was saying was a language at all. It might have been Swahili, which is, there's a lot of that in the play, of course, but I don't think it was. She got about two-thirds, about halfway across, and the audience starts laughing. Okay. Why? Well, because it was a language which was conveying no meaning, and it was met with a ludicrous emotion in the hearers. She got to about two-thirds of the way across, and she turned and she said, Do you understand? And of course, the whole place erupts in laughter. Because without the ears to hear, without the understanding, and you've all experienced this, as, as, at least as children, I hope no, not so much as adult, but your children, you're, you're in a store, and somebody on the other aisle, you know, around the clothes or whatever, are speaking Chinese. And your children start giggling. You're like, stop that. They're giggling because it's a language without meaning. And in our hearts, such, such things conjure up nothing more than laughter and mockery. And so we can understand those who were standing around who didn't have that miracle happen within their ears and within their heart. They were just hearing babbling. They were hearing Rafiki. And P Peter sits, stands up and says, do you understand? No, they didn't get it. To the unbeliever, this is a reminder that though the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of faith brought by Christianity, may be unintelligible to you, they are not, therefore, meaningless. They are not drunken babble. Because we don't understand a foreign language does not make it idiocy does not make it barbaric. It is a language that is understood by others. To those who do believe, to those who have heard, what is it that makes us to differ? There is no room for pride. There is no room for hatred. There is no room for prejudice or bigotry. If God has granted us the ears to hear, then it is by His grace for which we are thankful. If he has not granted others to ear, ears to hear, then it should be our prayer that he would yet do so. These are words 
that speak of the mighty deeds of God and the mightiest deed of all. And I have no doubt that whatever these men and women were hearing, as these disciples spoke of the mighty deeds of God, at the center of it was what God had just done through Jesus Christ. Sending his only begotten son to take upon himself the sins of his people, to bear the wrath of a holy and righteous God alone on the cross, to enter into the grave, though he did not deserve to die, and to conquer it, to rise on the third day, to bind the strong man, Satan, and to begin to, begin to build that kingdom of God out of the plunder of the strong man's home. These are, the my, these are the mighty deeds of God of which the disciples undoubtedly speak. The gift of hearing the gospel of salvation is still a miracle. It's not something that we bring about through argumentation. We're not going to fill the churches by proving that God created the world in six days. We're not going to fill the churches by somehow finding Noah's Ark or rebuilding it in Kentucky. <laughs> Just happened to be where they built it. I mean, all of these things are interesting for believers. But folks, evangelism comes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's still a babbling sound of drunkards to much of the world. But to those whom God has granted grace, it is the true legacy of Pentecost. The ears to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Why are we not Pentecostal at our church? Well, I would say that if we're considering the 1906 Azusa Street version, we are not Pentecostal. We do not believe that the scripture teaches that what happened here at Pentecost was to be normative within the Christian church. We do not believe that there is a hierarchy or a separation among believers between those who do not have the second blessing and those that do. In fact, we would go so far as to say that the gift of tongues became to the early church like that pole that Moses held up in the wilderness with the serpent, the golden serpent on it. No, Andrew, this wasn't reflecting you. Okay. That if anyone looked upon that pole and that serpent, they would be healed. But we read that that had to be destroyed because the people of Israel turned to it as to an idol and they began to worship it. And so that which was a good gift given to the church was taken away. And we can certainly read in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians that that gift had become an idol. It had become a stumbling block. It had been, become a cause of division and of prejudice within the church. And God, I believe, took it away. And today it is still an idol in many branches of the church. But this is about, about Acts chapter 2. And in that regard, I would consider us fully Pentecostal. That God has poured out His Spirit... And he has granted all those to whom he has granted faith in Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he has written his law no longer on tablets of stone, but upon the hearts of believers. That's Pentecostalism. And in that, I would say I am fully a Pentecostal.
Can this type of Pentecost still happen? I know most of you have heard sermons that will say that if ever there is speaking of tongues, anything like this, that it is the work of the devil. I can't go that far. It seems to me that where Christ has never been presented or preached, or or men do not even know that there is a Holy Spirit, that it may be that in the preaching of the gospel, God will do something like he did here on this day of Pentecost. He will do it two more times in our reading of the book of Acts. But he does it in support and manifestation of the gospel of his son Jesus Christ. It's not about a second blessing. It's not about a a personal prayer language. It's not about higher life or victory or sanctification. It's about the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. It's about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the true miracle is not in the speaking in tongues, but in the hearing. And so Paul, I think, concludes the matter for me when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have poured out your Spirit, that you have united us to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit that now dwells within our hearts. We give you eternal thanks, for we know that none of us were worthy, none of us were better than anyone else, but only by your grace and mercy You have given us ears to hear the call of the gospel of salvation. And we pray, Father, that that gospel will continue to go forth from your church and that you will do as you did, even as we will read, add daily those who are being saved. For your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.